The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. All right, very good, everybody. So appreciate everybody joining here. Uh, my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, as the special guest for the hour, Anthony Davies. Uh, Anthony, I came across some of your YouTube videos and some of your content, and was very much impressed. I saw a number of people were tracking you. I figured might as well have you here as a guest. So a lot of people that are listening to this space probably are not uh, that familiar with you. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of set the stage, talk about who you are, your background, what you do, and how you look at the world. Sure. I'm Anthony Davies. I'm Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. And I um, am trained as an econometrician, so I look at data and how that relates to what we understand about the economy and spend much of my time arguing that free markets seem to be, both empirically and, and theoretically, they seem to be the solution to the question of how do we make society a better place. Okay, so there's a there's a lot of interesting places to go with that as a framework, but let's let's kind of start off with the idea of making society a better place. So there's democracy and there's capitalism, and I've long argued, Anthony, I want to hear your thoughts on this. That I actually don't think the two can coexist in the sense that we know that politicians. Uh, often get elected because they promise more. Nobody ever gets uh, elected because democracy of and capitalism. Yet the two, I think, the word capitalism gets is is misunderstood by mo- almost everybody. When an economy okay, uses so the word capitalism, what we mean is a system in which uh, people are free to buy and sell as they choose, provided they aren't imposing harm on anyone else. And one of the consequences of that is that some people will to own means of production and they'll employ others uh, who will then use these means of production to produce goods. And that's that's simply all capitalism is. Is it antithetical to democracy? That's an interesting question because I think democracy itself can be antithetical to freedom. And what I mean by that is if you have a simple case where we say, all right, we're going to decide what we're going to do by majority vote. This is a democracy. And so 51 percent of us vote that we're going to take everything that the other 49 percent of us has and have and we're going to take it for ourselves. Now, 
clearly that's that's antithetical to free markets because you're basically taking 51 percent of the people and 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 enslaving the other 49 percent and our founders understood this because when they established the united states they did not establish it as a democracy they established it as a republic that is yes the voters have a say in how we're governed but that say is limited in very specific ways to protect the minority and that framework of being free to do what you want, provided that you aren't imposing harm on someone else, is the core of what capitalism is about. Right. So, but but every form of capitalism that we've seen in history ends up resulting to GDP getting to unsustainable levels. So, so right. And 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 again, it goes back to that point that democracy results in promising of more. So, I'm curious, given your framework, I go back to that question: Can can democracy or a form of democracy, which you know we all know the U.S. is not quite a full full democracy in a lot of ways, but can it really survive uh, longer term if again debt keeps on going up because politicians eventually go to the MMT way of thinking things? Yeah, they believe that debt that debt doesn't matter, and this is you mentioned MMT, modern monetary theory, and this is this is a, it's actually a fringe discipline within economics where a, a small number of economists think that we can go ahead and print wh- whatever money we want. We can uh, uh, monetize the deficits and we don't have to worry about doing that. And of course, most economists will tell you, well, when you do that, you're going to get inflation. And inflation is, interestingly, a violation of this principle of don't impose harm on others. So what happens with inflation is you are, you are in effect, taxing people when you inflate the dollar, you're not taxing them in the traditional sense of raising your tax rates. But what I'm doing is taxing the the purchasing power of your dollars. So I, the government, start printing money. I, the government, have more money to spend. But in the process, the money that you, all the voters, have in your pockets, in your bank accounts, that money now buys less because of inflation. I have, in effect, taxed away the purchasing power of that money. I've imposed a harm on you. And that's antithetical to what we think what we think of when we think about the principles of a good democracy or, or, or a good functioning economy. And that's really a function of money illusion, right? Because people seem to be under the impression that if politicians are promising them growth, they're going to make more money, incomes go up. But as we've seen, that's obviously not so so cut and dry, right? Because after inflation, real incomes we've seen post COVID has really gone down, right? People are actually worse off from a real inflation-adjusted basis. Yeah, very much so. Money illusion is something that many people suffer from, and politicians, whether they suffer from it or not, I don't know, but I do know that politicians benefit from people suffering from it. And in short, money illusion is the focus on the dollars, the thought that it's the dollars that matter. And you'll hear politicians say things like, well, this policy will get more dollars in the hands of people. And don't get me wrong, dollars are important but they're only important as a means to an end. The end is goods and services. And so I can have a policy in which we're printing lots of dollars and someone who suffers from money illusion will look at that and say, well, this is great because we've got more dollars. But an economist will look at that and say, no, you're not any better off than you were before because you've got the same amount of goods and services. It's the goods and services that matter. And this is one of the places in which modern monetary theory goes off the rails because it begins and ends with 
talking about dollars, how many dollars we have, what the definition of them are, and how they move between people, completely ignoring that what matters is the goods and services. And modern monetary theory does not have a mechanism by which we produce more goods and services. Right. And one of the things that's always bothered me about the MMT way of thinking is that what's critical, at least as I understand it among the theorists there, is that Governments need to be able to tax to counter inflation caused by modern monetary theory. The problem, of course, is that, as we know, a lot of politicians are funded by lobbyists and the very wealthy that they're supposed to tax under MMT. So we're in this weird kind of weird situation, I would argue, as a system where it's almost like being half pregnant, right? You can't really be half MMT. You're either going to be all in or not. So you end up having this Frankenstein of an economy. Right. And this is when when you confront MMTers about this this business of look you want to print money you print money you're going to get inflation and the MMT crowd will come back with two responses and the first response is well you don't have to worry so much we're not going to have that much inflation because the dollar is a reserve currency and what that means is that foreign countries foreign governments foreign investors will invest in US dollars they'll hold those dollars now what's really going on there is what the what's going on in the background is as we um, print more money and we get inflation, the pain of that inflation is spread over everyone who holds dollars, whether you're in the United States or not. And so what really the MMTers are arguing is not that we won't get inflation, but rather that Americans won't feel the full brunt of the inflation because we're going to foist some of it off on other uh, other people, foreigners. Now, you know the counter argument to this is is look the reason that the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency is because it's had stable value. If we start inflating it, foreigners, foreign governments, foreign investors are going to think twice about holding dollars. It will cease to be a reserve currency, just like the British pound at one point was the was the world reserve currency the dutch gilder these things ceased to be currencies in part because their governments inflated them so this is one this is one problem the second problem and you raise this thing is the mmtiers will say look if you get inflation the government can siphon off the excess money to bring price levels back down it will siphon off the excess money through taxes so you've got this situation where, on the one hand, the Federal Reserve is printing more dollars the government can spend, and on the other hand, the government's going to tax dollars out of the economy so we don't have so many dollars, we don't get a lot of inflation. Now, what that boils down to when you're done is really a bait-and-switch. It's a bait-and-switch in which we're substituting things that people want for things that politicians and bureaucrats want. That is. At the end of the day, when we have done that, we may have the same GDP we had at the beginning, and we may have low inflation just like we had at the beginning. But what constitutes that GDP will have changed. We'll have fewer houses, we'll have more border walls, we'll have fewer avocados, and we'll have more hand grenades. We'll have fewer things that people want and more things that politicians want. Oh, and by the way, all of that assumes that when Congress gets hold of this extra money that is taxed off, it won't turn around and spend it, which, of course, if you look historically, this is what Congress does every time it gets more tax revenue. I'm so glad you said that because I got I got some heat a few months back for this tweet I put out and people thought I was trying to be anti-Democrat, pro-Republican when saying this. But it was more just a comment about the political system in that 
every single round of new taxes is never used to pay down prior debt. It's always used as an excuse to spend more. And I don't know how you how you break that. And it's not clear to me why other people don't see that. And I would argue the same thing also on the Republican side to some extent. I don't want to get too much on, on the political discussion here, but you know, at the end of the day, both parties love to spend, right? And both parties love socialist policies. With Republicans, I would argue Republicans are more on the army side, right? Democrats on on kind of everything else. But it all sort of takes on the idea that at the end of the day, you know, you can keep on printing dollars. So, so yeah. So maybe maybe kind of respond to that. Just kind of riff on that on that concept. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And and you're absolutely correct to fault both parties here. This is not a a political thing where one party is is the good guy and the other one's the bad guy. This is a function of the political animal itself, that when Congress gets hold of more money, Congress turns around and spends it. And you can look at, go back through history and look at every time the federal government's revenues have gone up. And of course, the, the argument politicians will give is we need to raise revenue so that we can close the deficit, pay down the debt, whatever it is. But if you look historically, on average, every time Congress's tax revenues have gone up by a buck, the next year their spending goes up by a buck twenty. And so we've got this this strange situation where if you want to reduce the deficit, the answer is actually to starve Congress of money, because historically we see that every time we give them more, they don't pay down the deficit; they actually expand it. Ah, okay. So now this is where it gets to the root of the of the problem, which would be that there would be those that would argue, I think correctly so, that if you did starve Congress of all of this spending, and I'm not talking about necessarily the inefficient spending, but spending kind of across the board, that that would create an instant recession slash possible depression, right? So even if you were to argue, for example, that, you know, one way to, to lower debt is cut military spending, which I would most likely agree with in general, but if even to go with that, yeah, I mean, the military is also a big employer. Right, and that would cause a, a significant jump conceivably also in the unemployment rate. So how do you actually have any kind of political will to do that when voters themselves will say, if you do that, we're not going to keep you in power? Yeah. And you're tapping into here this thing that we have all been taught, myself included, through our when, when we're in school, that we suffered the Great Depression. And what brought us out of the Great Depression was our involvement in World War II. Conclusion government spending is necessary to stimulate the economy. And this is the thing we're all told until you happen to study economics and realize, wait a minute, there's a problem with this story. And one of the major problems is that this 10-year depression we had from starting in 1929 and ending in World War II, it was only a 10-year depression for the United States. Everybody else on the planet was out of it over the course of six months to a couple of years. So the question is, what is it that caused this Great Depression to be great in the United States and not elsewhere? And what brought us out of it? What brought us out of it was not the government spending. Well, actually, what happened when with the government spending, our unemployment rate dropped, not because of the government spending, but because of all of a sudden a bunch of young working age men were taken out of the economy and sent to Europe and Japan to fight the war. But, but if you think this through, what you find is that the core fallacy here is what we call the seen and the unseen. And so we say, well, look, if we starve Congress of money and Congress can't spend and we're going to get a, a, a recession because of this, what we're seeing is the reduction in government spending. And we say, oh, my God, that's going to translate into, into reduced economic activity. 
And all of that is correct, but it's only half of the story. We aren't looking at the unseen part. And the unseen part is what would happen to those dollars if we did not give them to Congress? Well, if we didn't give them to Congress, I'd have them and you'd have them. Other people would have them. What would we do with those dollars? We'd spend them. And so all of a sudden you see that by starving Congress of the money, yes, government spending will decline, but consumer spending will increase. And so consequently, you're not going to get a reduction in the in the uh, economic activity. In fact, you'll get a shift in the economic activity away from things that Congress wants toward things that the taxpayers want. Yeah, no, that's a good way to frame it. Sort of there's an opportunity cost to that. Now, now on this point about deficits, so it's kind of an interesting thing that you sent me on the on the direct message as far as different topics. So I remember when QE3 in particular, quantitative easing 3 was floated. The big concern was that the the economy didn't really need the Fed doing another round of quantitative easing back then, 2012, 2013, and that it would cause massive, massive inflation. What ended up happening, which I, I want you to kind of hit on, is you had inflation hidden in financial markets in this yep. incredibly smooth risk on smooth move in in equity. So I want you to kind of talk through your 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 thesis here around this idea that inflation sure. has actually been hidden for a while and only now is it starting to really be visible. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners, Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, it's so we have the quantitative easing back in, and we started really in force around around about April of 2020 with with regard to COVID. And and any economist will tell you, well, if you expand the money supply like that, which is what quantitative easing is, you're going to get inflation. And you look at the at the numbers, and you don't see inflation in March, April of 2020. In fact, you don't see it for probably another year later. And the question is why. What you do notice, if you look at it, is a burgeoning stock market. And this is very strange. Now, of course, the stock market took a big hit at the very start of COVID. We had the first uh, first week of the lockdowns. Stock market took a big hit, but then it immediately turned around and started marching up in real solid fashion. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Over the course of March, April, May, June of 2020, the stock market rising solidly, despite the fact that our unemployment rate was the highest it's been since the Great Depression. We had done this unprecedented thing of telling huge swaths of the economy, you can't work anymore, you have to stay home. And on top of everything, nobody knew how long this was going to last. With all of that uncertainty and with that huge unemployment, you should expect the stock market to tank. But it didn't. It was not only was it rising, it was rising at a really good clip. Now, what's going on here is that this money that the Federal Reserve pumped into the system did not go into the market for goods and services. It went into financial markets largely. And that caused bond prices to rise. It caused stock market prices to rise. And guess what? 
financial assets, prices are not included in inflation calculations. So when we calculate inflation, we get this really low inflation and we look over there at stock markets and we say, oh, this is great. The stock market's going up. Yeah, that was the inflation. It was hiding in the stock market. And I predicted at the time, wait until COVID's over and things settle down. That money is going to start flowing out of financial markets into goods and services markets. And I said, and this was like six months, over a year ago, that when that happens, you'll see the stock market start to top off and you'll start to see inflation. And sure enough, that's exactly what we saw. As things started to settle down, that money started to move out of financial markets. So stock markets stopped rising at that great clip. And instead, we had rises in prices of goods and services. And now we're averaging something like around 8 to 11% now over the past year. So this is interesting. So, so the argument, correct me if I'm wrong, here is that the stock market now has become a source of having to pay for higher priced goods, which causes sort of a reinforcing right. cycle of higher priced goods and even lower stocks. So in other words, the stock market no longer, which I agree with, by the way, is no longer a discounting mechanism of the future. It's simply the present. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's the present hedge against inflation. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, Andy, I, uh, I love when an economist is fired up. I really, like, I really do. Like, I enjoy, like, hearing that, that passion, that energy, because, you know, they call it the dismal science and all this, but, you know, I, I think the way that you frame things is, is spot on. Now, I was listening to one of your lectures talking about how debt is not $30 trillion, It's so much more. And everybody hears about unfunded liabilities, but I want you to educate the audience here, put the academic professor hat on, and, and explain sort of where we are in the nation's debt and why this is such a wildly dangerous spot to be in as a country. Yeah, we're at the official debt is now $30 trillion, which is which is now greater than the size of the economy. And and people will say things like, well, you don't have to worry about the size of the debt because the government doesn't have to pay it off, which is actually correct. The government doesn't have to pay it off. Think of the federal debt as your credit card. Um, when you get your credit card bill at the end of the month, you don't have to pay off the credit card. You just have to make the minimum monthly payment. You do that and everything's fine. So too with the government. It doesn't need to pay off that $30 trillion. All it has to do is make its minimum, its, its interest payment, the equivalent of its minimum monthly payment. Now, here's where things start to get a little bit dicey. The federal government pays right now around 2.5% interest on its debt multiply that by $30 trillion, and you're now at whatever it is, $600, $700 billion uh, a year just in interest. So let me rephrase that. The amount of interest the federal government spends each year on on the debt, the interest expense, exceeds the size of the Department of Defense budget. That is, we spend more on interest than we spend on the military. It's a huge amount. And Put it in perspective, the government's paying 2.5% interest. That's a historic low. The average interest that the government has, has paid over time has been around 6%. Now, if we were to, if interest rates were to go back up just to their average level of 6%, it would be costing the federal government over a trillion dollars a year just in interest. And you notice now, once you digest that, that we, that the federal government has put the Federal Reserve in a very bad situation. That is, it's forced the Federal Reserve to have to choose 
between doing what's best for the economy and doing what's best for the federal government. That is, what's best for the economy is to control inflation. But the way you control inflation is by restricting the money supply, which drives interest rates up. But if interest rates rise, all of a sudden the federal government is hit with massive interest expense. And so now the Federal Reserve's got this choice of, you know, do we do what's good for, for the economy or do we do, do what's good for the federal government? That whole situation, bad enough as it is, isn't the end of the story. We have, you have started off by asking about unfunded liabilities. Unfunded liabilities aren't included in that $30 trillion. And unfunded liabilities are, think of the amount to future retirees. So when you're out there working and you're you're paying into Social Security, and the federal government has said to you, when you retire, we'll pay you retirement benefits of a certain amount. Well, take all of those promises of retirement benefits and subtract the amount of money the federal government will collect in future payroll taxes, and you end up with a hole. And that hole is, by conservative estimates, $100 trillion in size. That is, the federal government has promised an amount of money it cannot pay. It will not have the money. That hole is, in today's terms, about $100 trillion. So you're left at this interesting situation where the federal government mathematically is bankrupt right now. It just continues on the way it has because the situation hasn't gotten bad enough. It's like the, the credit card thing. We've gotten to a situation where we're it's inevitable we're not going to be able to make the minimum monthly payments on our credit card, but we can make them right now and we keep on spending. And politicians will do this. They'll kick the thing down the road because why? By the time all of this finally blows up, the guys in office now will be retired. Okay, so there's going to be two, I'll, I'll play the other side, but there's two counter arguments. So you use the word promised. So promises can be broken and, and so we can we can play with that a little bit. But the other argument is that, well, you know, maybe we'll have some kind of massive growth spurt. Somehow, magically, growth will pick up. And you noted something which is interesting when it comes to CBO projections and how far off those tend to be. Uh, talk, talk through that for the audience. I think it's, it's interesting in terms of framing the way the government justifies its spending against forecasts that end up being worthless. It is possible that there'll be some massive growth spurt, but that growth, a growth spurt of the magnitude to fix the problem we're talking about would have to be something on the on the order of the invention of the internet, right? The discovery of fusion power, something like that. It's a it, it's a low probability event. That's the kind of growth that we're talking about. And you know, you mentioned the CBO. The CBO attempts to anticipate this type of growth, and there's a very good example of this of the CBO overestimating the growth. Back when uh, President Obama was in office, he predicted coming out of the 2008 housing crash, uh, he predicted that with his policies in place, the economy will grow fast enough to be able for us to afford all of that stimulus spending we did in 2008. And if you look at his, it, I should say his, look at the CBO's projections under his administration, the CBO was projecting our economy would have grown at dot-com era level over the course of the decade from 2008 through 2018. We didn't come close to that. In fact, that, anybody who looked at that would have said, that's ridiculous. You're, you're, you're suggesting we're going to duplicate what happened in the dot-com era again. 
it's a low probability event is not going to happen. And in fact, if you look back at CBO forecasts, they're all like this. On average, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, underestimates the future debt by like a factor of two or three. The, the, the actual debt is two to three times larger consistently than the CBO projects it will, projects it will be. Yeah, I think actually it's funny because I think if you also looked at Federal Reserve forecasts, you'll see that they're always uh, also overly optimistic on, on growth historically. I remember seeing a study about that uh, a few years ago. So this seems to be this kind of pervasive aspect of getting it wrong when it comes to policymakers. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, there's that. And there's also that we come back to this proclivity of Congress to uh, tax in the good times. And so you can project some wonderful thing that's going to happen, some new innovation that's going to spur economic activity. And I guarantee you, if indeed such a thing happened, the very next day, Congress would be saying, well, we can afford to raise taxes now because everybody's much more wealthy. And that raising the taxes will squelch that, that um, economic growth. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Andy. The um, a lot of the way that you're framing things and and are talking about things is arguably what I think a lot of the Bitcoin community is is so uh, adamant about and why they believe Bitcoin solves things. And I never was of that opinion because I tend to look at it much more from the standpoint that the problems with government's usage of taxpayer capital and this reckless debt that they put on it can't really be solved by uh, a digital currency. It has to be solved by the Constitution. That you have to have some kind of real sort of legal limits. I've even put out this tweet. It's, you know, every single Congress uh, member should be required. Uh, their compensation should be tied to you know profitability of the country as opposed to anything else, right? So, from from your vantage point, if you could rewrite history, what's the thing that you think would have helped to at least mitigate some of this tremendous debt that the system has? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there were there were a number of of things that failed, that any one of which could have prevented us from getting where we are. And the first one I have to blame is the voters, where you know the voters at any point could say, we've had enough, we're going to vote the bums out, voting different bums. And we say we're going to do that, but in fact, we don't. We keep on voting for the same people over and over again. In fact, not only do we vote for the same people, we vote for the same policies that put us in this position. So I, the voter, will say something like, yeah, I think that the debt and the deficit are horrible things. We need to fix that. We need, Washington needs to tighten its belt. Oh, yeah, but not with respect to this one thing that is important to me. Just tighten your belts everywhere else. And you get every single voter doing that. And all of a sudden, you have a situation where we're not tightening our belts on anything. In fact, we're, we're increasing spending in all these ways that the voters want it. So it's one way in which we failed. Another way in which we failed is in ignoring the Constitution. The Constitution lists Article 1, Section 8. There's a list of about nine things that the federal government is authorized to do. That's it. It's those nine things, nothing else. 
And that's not to say that we shouldn't have Social Security, we shouldn't have Medicare. It's to say that if you want Social Security and Medicare, according to the Constitution, you do it at the state level. You don't do it at the federal level. And if you do that, you have an interesting phenomenon arise where the different states get to try different things and learn from each other what works and what doesn't. Instead, what we did, we got to a situation where we confused things that are good with things that are constitutional. And so we said, here's an idea. This is good. We should do it. It doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Well, once you do that, all of a sudden, all bets are off. The federal government can do all manner of things. And you can track this in two ways. You can watch this whole business started around about the early 1900s. You can track from the early 1900s to the present, the debt going up and up and up and up as the federal government breaks through its constitutional constraints. You can also track, and it, it looks almost like the exact same document, you track the number of pages in the federal register. This is the official book that contains all federal regulations, and that does the exact same thing. It goes up and up and up as the federal government has broken through its constitutional constraints. So we reached a point where we, probably about going on 100 years ago, where we said, look, the Constitution just really doesn't matter. Um, we pay lip service to it, but anymore, we treat it more like a, a mission statement than we do an actual restriction on the government. And that's what gives you the problems we currently have. I love that because it takes it outside of the, the simplistic argument that this is all just a, a consequence of a fiat-based economy, that it's not just sort of a function of being off the gold standard, right? Because arguably, after 1971, it's when all this really accelerated, right? And yeah. at the same time, after 1971, there was also arguably a lot of progress, right? If you look at the the kind of wealth that was created across the board, the acceleration was not just in debt, but there, there was a lot of societal progress, civilization process, progress, even across the globe, poverty levels not being as, as severe as they was, were prior to that. But so it's, to you, it's not so much about the idea that this is all a consequence of a fiat-based system. This is a, it's almost like a legal issue. Yeah, no, it's, I don't think it's a fiat-based problem at all. Now, I think there is a relationship there that some people will, will get confused, and that is that when we went on a fiat-based system and, and we divorced ourselves from a gold standard, all of a sudden now the Federal Reserve could print as much money as it wanted. And that was the problem, the ability to print as much money as they want. That's what gives us the, the rising inflation that we're experiencing, the devaluation of the dollar. But you can get that restriction without a gold standard. You mentioned Bitcoin. You can do it with a, with a cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is hardwired. You're only going to get this much Bitcoin. You're not going to get more of it. We could have had legal, um, uh, some legal structure in place where the Federal Reserve was not allowed to print more than a certain amount of money. What, what made the gold standard interesting from an economic perspective was, had nothing to do with the gold. It had to do with the fact that the quantity of gold was limited. And because of because the gold was linked to the dollars, therefore the quantity of dollars was limited. It was limiting the quantity of dollars that was important. And I think I think the future the future lies in cryptocurrency. I don't know whether it's Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or something that hasn't been invented yet. But the future lies in, in in cryptocurrency. What we want to be very careful of is that we end up using a cryptocurrency that's private. 
Right now, you'll get politicians talking about uh, the a digital dollar. They want the U.S. dollar to be uh, a cryptocurrency. That's nonsense because you're bringing all of the problems that we have with the U.S. dollar and just converting them into an electronic format. If anything, it's even worse because now the government's going to be able to track every single transaction that occurs. So that doesn't gain you anything. What gains you something is by taking the control of the money supply out of the hands of politicians. And you can do that. Maybe there are other ways to do it, but one way to do it is by using a privatized currency. All of a sudden, uh, Congress and the Federal Reserve are going to find their hands tied, and, and we might find our economy not growing as fast as it used to if, if we cease to have the reserve currency. Now, I think that's I think if that comes to pass, that's a ways off in you know several decades, simply because the United States alone is whatever it is, a quarter to a third of, of the world's economy. Now, the question is, if if the US dollar does cease to be a reserve currency, what replaces it? If if the thing that replaces it is something like a, a Bitcoin, a, a privatized cryptocurrency. I think, if anything, that's actually going to be beneficial because all of a sudden the entire world is going to start to benefit from this, this currency that's no longer being controlled by a government and is, is relatively easy to move back and forth. You mentioned uh, China and, and India. I think the question as to whether either of those countries' currencies or con become contenders as reserve currencies depends on what happens with those economies. I don't know. I don't know the recent history of India, but I do know that China, at least up until a couple of years ago, was moving forward quite solidly with market reforms. Now, don't get me wrong. China is not what we would call in the United States a free market, but it is remarkably more free than it was 30, 40 years ago. And I think that in part is why people will point to China and say, well, look, China's great economic uh, growth. How can you say that, that free markets are great? China's not a free market. It has this great economic growth. Well, it has a great economic growth in large part because it has been adopting market freedoms. It has a long way to go, but it's come a long way as well. If that continues, we could end up in a position two, three decades into the future where China has economic freedoms that are more similar to what we have in the United States today. It's sitting on the over a billion people, as is India. It's a huge economy. And once that economy actually gets moving in the same pace that, that other um, uh, developed countries' uh, economies are moving, all of a sudden, I think it becomes a no-brainer that China's currency becomes the, the reserve currency. Let me say it this way. I'm... I think it's more likely that we will see growth like that than that we won't. Now, how much more likely, I couldn't say. Is it a 51-49 proposition or a 75-25? I don't think it's a 75-25, but I, I would say, yeah, there, it's more, more likely than not we'd see that kind of growth. But the reason I think we'll see that kind of growth is not so much because the economy is, is in great shape and it's going to go you know, charging forward but rather because the economy was held back for so long. It's, it's almost like the rubber band snapping back into place. We're, we're going to snap back into place. We haven't snapped back into place fully yet, 
with the, since the COVID lockdowns. We're still dealing with the supply chain problems and all of this. As all of this sorts itself out, which it will over the course of the next year, two years or so, you'll see the economy pick up nicely. Now, that 2% growth looks really good. But again, keep in mind, it's not like 2% moving forward. It's 2% catching up to where we should have been anyway. But once we catch up to where we should have been anyway, I think then we're going to see growth slow down. You're going to be talking, you know, whatever it is, 1% to 2%. I don't know if it's Bitcoin. I don't know if it's Ethereum. But there's some there's some solution out there that is what we need. It's a decentralized um, system that is not in control of the government, that's secure, all of that. And from what I understand, Bitcoin fulfills those uh, those uh, requirements. Now, when you talk about the distinction between Ethereum and Bitcoin, that I didn't mention that it's worth talking about. And that is, um, to my understanding, Ethereum does grow, whereas Bitcoin, there's a, there's a fixed amount. Once we reach it, that's all there is, whereas Ethereum grows. But Ethereum grows algorithmically. That is, there's there's nobody like a Federal Reserve who says wakes up one morning and says, okay, we need more Ethereum and starts printing more Ethereum. It grows algorithmically according to number of transactions or, or whatever it is. You know that better than I do. But here's the interesting thing. I think when you have a currency like a Bitcoin type, there's a fixed amount, that's all there is. What's going to happen over time is those Bitcoin will become more and more valuable because our economy is growing, and yet the quantity of Bitcoin is fixed. And because they become more and more valuable, two things will happen. One is people will love to hold their savings in that Bitcoin, because I could put my savings in there and the, the value of the Bitcoin is going to rise over time. The second thing is going to happen is I'm not going to want to use the Bitcoin for purchases, because I know that over time, Bitcoin is going to be worth more. It's going to be really painful to for, for me to hand one over, thinking to myself, well, if I held on to that 10 years from now, it's going to be worth more. So I think what we're going to end up with is two types of cryptocurrency side by side. One that's, I'll say, Bitcoin-like. There's a fixed amount, that's all there is, and it grows in value over time because it's fixed. And another one that's, I'll say, Ethereum-like. That is, it grows algorithmically, perhaps matching the growth of the economy. And the value of that second one, the Ethereum-like one, that will remain constant. So over time, an Ethereum is worth a certain amount. It has some purchasing power. And 10 years down the road, it'll have about the same purchasing power. That kind of coin, I don't want to put my savings in, but that's exactly the type of coin that I'll buy and sell goods mm -hmm. with. So I think we're going to end up with two, two cryptos side by side that people will use for these two different things, investing slash savings and, uh, and purchasing. That does bring up the interesting other, other idea or, or quasi-solution as, as, as I'm just hearing this discussion. You know, you mentioned algorithmic, right? So that kind of goes with this idea of, well, maybe you could solve a lot of problems if simply the Fed followed a, a rules-based approach, a Taylor rule or something like that, that right. would be quantitative and not based on voluminous data that the end of the day doesn't really predict the future anyway. Yeah. And this was um, Milton Friedman suggested this, you know, decades ago that the Federal Reserve should follow some rule. Uh, and I've, I forget the details of it, but it was something like um, the the money supply should grow at the same rate that the that the economy grows, and that would keep the value of the dollar stable. Something like that would work fine. The problem is you're relying on people to adhere to that rule. And we can say, well, it's a rule, it's written down, 
except that we've seen over the past hundred years and even rules that are written in the Constitution itself. If people decide they don't want to follow them, they end up not following them. So I think something better is to have the rules written into the hardware, so to speak, like they are with with cryptocurrency. I, I often rant on on Twitter, not against Bitcoin, but against narratives, not just on, on Bitcoin, but narratives in general. And, and one of my rants I always go on is that people use the term that it's a store of value. And my argument is that it's not a store of value because it has tail risk, right? There's something that can go up or down 50%. That makes it because of the path of movement from a purchasing power perspective, not a, a quote unquote safe store of value. Okay. So, but going with that point, the, the necessary precursor to every crash in any asset class is always leverage. Full stop, right? Leverage is always the necessary precondition. And the issue, at least from my vantage point, with any decentralized cryptocurrency is that because it's traded 24-7 globally, you can find some entity or some individual who is willing to uh, lend you some massive multiplier, some massive leverage, which you know results in over leverage and as you know, Bitcoin or anything else goes up, right? That results in even more uh, tail risk potential. Yeah. And and so I think the, the thing to think about here is we two things. One, we can't look at, at the volatility of cryptocurrency today and say that's what the volatility that's what the volatility would be if indeed this were a fully accepted currency. I think if it were a fully accepted currency, the volatility would be much, much less than what than what we're seeing now. The second thing to think about is there's volatility in the US dollar as well. In fact, the volatility got worse when we went off the gold standard, that is, when the Federal Reserve could just decide to print more or or, or print less as it chose. When we introduced the human factor in there, that the the humans are now going to decide that we need more money or less money, that's when you got more volatility. And I I think, you know, you're you're absolutely right that, that, you know, our crashes are, are led by the leveraging. And I argue here, the two major, or the, you know, the last major crash that we saw in 2008, putting aside COVID, was brought about by overleveraging, of course, and the overleveraging was brought about by decades of interest rates that were artificially low. That is, the humans at the Federal Reserve decided that what's good for all of us is to expand the money supply, keep interest rates low, and of course, people reacted. And what did they do? They started borrowing more money than than they could afford. Oh, and throw into the mix. The government then, um, you know, standing behind securing or, or augmenting uh, uh, mortgages through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You know, people say the 2008 housing crash is a beautiful example of the greed of the Wall Street bankers, to which I reply, hang on a second. At the height of the housing bubble, the federal government owned half of the mortgages in the United States through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is not a, bank, a, a a story of banker greed. It's a story of the of the government putting banks in a position where they had only upside from lending and no downside from from default because the government was going to force that onto the taxpayers. And if all of that is scary to you, imagine the exact same thing is going on right now with student lending. The federal government is taking almost the exact steps in the same order in the student loan market that it took in the housing market that led to the housing bubble and crash. And I think we're going to see something similar with with student loans. The unfunded liabilities. The question is, when do they come due? The the unfunded liabilities. And let me be clear about this. It's 
it's not at all clear what the va- what the the magnitude of the unfunded liabilities are. The the estimates range from the lowest I've seen is 100 trillion, the highest I've seen is 250 trillion. So let's go with the lowest number of 100 trillion. And the thing is, the lowest number is still a number that the government can't deal with. But so let's go with the lowest number, 100 trillion dollars. That's the present value of that those future unfunded liabilities. And you're right, you'll get a bulk of them as the baby boomers retire. Uh, I don't know what that what that path looks like, but the hundred trillion is the present value of of that future stream. Now, you you asked you asked the question when does when do things start falling apart? I think perhaps one of the um, one of the natural places to look is 2036. And that's when the Social Security Board of Trustees forecasts that Social Security will be insolvent. And they've been that that number, that date fluctuates from year to year, but plus or minus a little bit, it's currently about 2036. So roughly in 14 years, Social Security will be out of money. And and that's when that's when things become a real problem, when it becomes obvious to everybody. And the Social Security Board of Trustees says, look, the only way to get around this is either to uh, cut retiree benefits by 20% across the board or increase payroll taxes by 20% across the board. And you can imagine neither group, the retirees nor the workers, are interested in either of those solutions. I think the way it plays out is we get politicians leading up to, we're not, they're not going to wait till 2036, but they'll come close, probably around 2025 to 20, 2030. So in the next, you know, less than a decade from now, they're going to start saying things like social security was never intended for everybody. It was intended as a safety net for the poorest of the poor. And so everybody shouldn't be getting it. Oh, and furthermore, a bunch of you out there, taxpayers, have employer-paid pensions or employer contributions to 401k plans. And you don't need social security because you have that. And furthermore, how is it that you have those things? You have those things because you got good jobs, because you got college educations, which came courtesy of the federal government. And so it's time for you to give back. And the way you're going to give back is by forfeiting uh, some or perhaps all of your Social Security benefits. So I think that's the way it plays out, that we've got a generation of people who are probably right now in college who are going to be paying into Social Security but never receiving anything back. And I think that doesn't solve the problem, but I think it probably does kick it down the road another 75 years. Again, please make sure you follow Andy, check out his podcast. Andy, this is the uh, first time you and I have spoken. First time also I think that you've done spaces. So I really do appreciate uh, that you spent the hour with us. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions.
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.